Hello, everyone. You're listening to Elisa Unfiltered Living Life Out Loud, the podcast. My name is Elisa curry and I am here today speaking from the heart to inspire and motivate you to be your best self. There is so much more to life than the nine to five daily grind, and I want to share all of my secrets with you. So let's get started. Hey guys, today I'm speaking with Mike Shaw. Mike is an old friend of mine from the freestyle skiing community. He is a coach, public speaker, mentor, and his story has impacted me amongst thousands of other human beings in the world on an unimaginable scale. His story is nothing short of miraculous. It has been documented on Red Bull TV, NBC, CTV, Global TV, and YouTube. His TEDx talk has reached thousands of people and continues to help those suffering through challenging times. And I'm incredibly honored to not only know him personally, but to be able to share his messages here today. One small note before we get started, some of the audio content in this podcast may be sensitive to some listeners. This story begins with a life-changing trauma, yet continues with a powerful message that we all have a choice on how we face it, overcome it, and move forward with gratitude for life. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Mike Shaw. Okay, Mike Shaw, I'm so happy to have you on the show. Um, thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for having me. <laughs> this is so exciting. So I haven't seen you for a long time. For For the guests listening today, uh, we're actually on Skype and you look awesome. Um, and it's- Likewise, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, you have one hell of a of a story. Um, just getting into it here, um, we, you and I, I've, I've known you for a long time. When did we actually meet? Like, I probably a decade, I, well, at least I'd say through the skiing world. I would say through the skiing world. For, yeah, and then you worked with Alberta Freestyle, well, with Windsport around the same time I was with Alberta, so we kind of reconnected back then and. Um, push comes to and we show. were even coaching Canada Winter Games together while on opposing teams. That was BC <laughs> yeah. or Alberta. And that was what year was that? Geez, that would have been 2011. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 2012. I don't know when. Where was it in Halifax? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 2011, I think. Yeah, oh yeah, I forgot. That's so cool. So I haven't seen you for a couple of years, though. So it's really good to see you now. And uh, and yeah, I. I brought you on the show because of your story and about sort of what happened um, in your life as a professional uh, skier and professional ski coach in freestyle skiing. So, um, I don't know. Are you are you ready to share? You are you? Right into yeah, it. I, yeah, I actually really do. You're a fascinating man, and this is a fascinating story. Please, please go for it. So it's my pleasure to share with you and thanks again for having me it's um i've had an interesting journey in life and it started out from being a competitive i mean and as a youngster being a competitive freestyle skier and getting into freestyle ski coaching at a high level and working with the canadian national development half pipe ski team up until uh 2013 when everything went uh tragically wrong one day and on December 16, 2013, while coaching my team, we were at a World Cup in just outside Denver, Colorado, at a 
at Copper Mountain. And um, sort of a routine afternoon skiing with my athletes, I was performing a trick for them. And we, were, we had done our official half-pipe training in the morning. So in the afternoon, we were skiing actually the Keystone Terrain Park. Make sure I get my details straight here. <laughs> but we were skiing at Keystone. And um, I performed a trick. And I was working on it with one of my athletes. It was uh, 720, so two full rotations where you take off forwards and land forwards. And on landing, I landed in uh, some punchy snow. It went, the trick in the air felt so good. And then when I landed, it was just like, bam, I got uppercut into the face. And uh, all my wind got knocked out of me. And I was tumbling downhill and I was so confused because I was like, what just happened? Like I was about to land that trick. I don't get it. And what ended up happening is even though I landed on my feet, Facing forward down the hill, everything was good. I landed in some punchy snow, and it basically stopped my skis dead in their track, pitching me forwards onto my face and head neck. My feet came up and over top of my body like a scorpion tail, and then I felt a brief but sharp pain in my neck, and then nothing. And as I was tumbling down the hill, I knew something was really wrong because I couldn't get up. My mind just was going a mile a minute. I was like, brief but sharp pain in my neck, then nothing. I'm paralyzed. No. Like my worst fear in skiing had come true because I'd known about spinal cord injuries. I know what it meant to break your back or break your neck because it had it happened to friends of mine, unfortunately. And so I knew before I'd even slid to a stop face down in the snow that I had just broken my neck and I was paralyzed from the neck down. So you knew, so you knew immediately. Immediately. I couldn't get up. I couldn't feel anything. I was going, no, 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 like, no, not me, not now, not here. Mm-hmm. It was so devastating and scary. And then uh, my mind started going to other things. Like, it was like, again, I was just, I thought, oh, I was like, the first thought was like, this is bullshit. I was like, I want redemption on that trick. I should have landed that. That's not right. fair. <laughs> And I'm like, and I, but I knew that was hopeless and I wasn't going to fixate on that for long, but my mind went to then my family. Cause I, I knew the severity of what had just happened. I, I'd thought about it before in skiing. It's unfortunately, uh, one of the risks involved with doing that sport is that it can, it can happen. And it happened to me that day. So I was like, I just, I ruined my parents' retirement. Wow. I was like, that's that. I was felt so guilty in that moment for that. But then I went to, well, okay, let me do a mental check because I'd had numerous concussions as well. And fortunately, I sort of checked my faculties and remembered like my name, my birthday, what day of the week it was, what month, where I was, how I got to the mountain. So I wasn't confused. And that was one of the first things that I was like, thank goodness I don't have a concussion right now because that being paralyzed and having a brain injury, that would be, that would be a lot to deal with. And um, then I went, okay, I've got to talk to, I got to talk to my friend, Josh Duick. He's a Paralympic sit skiing champion for Canada. He's won a gold medal and two silvers, I believe across two Paralympic games, but I knew he'd be able to help me. And then uh, by that time, my athletes had, kind of started to come and gather around me and I started telling them, I'm like, you guys, I'm, I'm down. I'm hurt. 
I broke my neck, I broke my neck, I can't get up, I can't feel anything, I can't move. And someone popped my ski off, and the way my ski was in the snow, it was what stopped me from sliding downhill. So as soon as they relieved the pressure on the ski binding, the ski rolled over and my body slid down the hill. And that's when fight or flight kicked in and the shock kind of wore off instantly. And I went and my eyes went big and I said, whoa, did you move me? I was like, do not move me. Right. I need ski patrol. I need support. I need to get off the snow. And I had one of my really good friends who was there that day skiing with us come and hold me in C-spine. And then my athletes went for patrol. And then that was the start of a very very long road to recovery or four and a half years ago now. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was the moment that changed my life forever. But I was, uh, I did get help. I was taken off the snow by ski patrol, taken down to the, the base at the bottom of the hill where a helicopter picked me up and flew me to Denver. And I had surgery on my neck. They installed two titanium rods and 10 screws in my neck, fusing me from my C3 vertebrae to my C7. So, like, basically the base of your skull to your shoulder, your collarbones. Got a pretty stiff neck these days. Yeah. <laughs> no bad sense of humor. <laughs> but, I mean, I can kind of laugh at this now, but, man, Yes. But yeah, then uh, the surgery went well, and, and I woke up, and I had a I had a little bit of movement in my body. I could move my head um, access neurologically to my deltoid muscles and my biceps. So the top of your shoulder and the top of your arm, you had sensation. Yeah, and mobility. No sensation. I had mobility, so oh. I could I could close my elbow, like I could like flex yeah. my bicep. Yep. Important for obvious reasons, gotta yeah. get chicks and whatever. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, bad sense of humor. But um, and uh, but I had that that working in my favor. So at that point, I was like, Phew, like, oh my goodness, yeah. I'm good. I like went into surgery, couldn't move anything. Came out of surgery, could move something. I was like, okay. I'm gonna be good. Yeah, I'm gonna be good. Which was, you know, ignorance is bliss. Yeah, I was so far from good. I uh, there would have been, but in my mind, I was like, okay, well, this is I'm already so much better off than I was yeah. eight hours ago. So this is uh, this is a step in the right direction. And then, fortunately, my uh, nerves started regenerating or coming back fairly rapidly. It uh, it wasn't long before I had movement in my in my legs. I couldn't feel anything, but I could at least move it. Yeah. And then uh, feelings started coming back in my arms. I couldn't move my wrists or my hands or anything like that for a couple of few weeks anyway. And like, but my, my legs were moving and I had a little bit of core engagement at the very beginning, but then it wasn't yeah. until sort of six or seven weeks before I really started getting up and getting going and I could stand and I could take some steps and start relearning to walk again and how to just reactivate my, my whole body. It was like a blank canvas, nothing where no muscles. So yeah. like, and every time I wanted a muscle to engage, it took a lot of, it was very, it was a cerebral process. Like I had to send really strong down messages to try to get things to fire in my body 
and I wasn't getting any feedback. Like, so your, your body's sensory, um, system, all of your nerves work. It's a two way street. You get a lot of feedback from your skin. It tells you a lot about your environment, about your weight transfer, about everything, the pressure on your, on your, on your bones and everything like that. And just feeling how your, your joints are stacking up and weighting up. And it's so important for balance, like for, to have coordination, you need motor ability and sensation. And I had fairly good motor ability, but really limited sensation. So for me, getting back to sports and getting back on my feet, it's been a very, uh, it's a cognitive process for sure. So I just, I have like one little question. Well, it's kind of a big question because just to clear this up, and you may have said this already, but you broke your neck, but not your spinal cord like what was the exact injury after all do you know that's a good question um because people so don't I, feel like paralyzed or have the, the yeah like people don't necessarily recover from paralysis or do they are you you must be a, a very um important statistic a, yeah it's i'm my recovery is rare no right. doubt right spinal spinal cord injuries are like fingerprints they're all different and my, I did have a spinal cord injury, a very serious spinal cord injury. Okay. However, I dislocated my neck and my, my fourth and fifth vertebrae down in my neck. Okay. So if you will, it's like, you know, those Pez dispenser candy machines. Yeah. Yeah. That's me. So you Pez dispenser. Just Pez dispenser for sure. <laughs> but yeah. Just opened up the front of my neck the biggest ligament in your body goes down the front of your vertebrae and mine snapped and then um the my my bones shifted back on to my spinal cord so it was crushing my spinal cord and had it been left like that without a doubt i would have been a complete quadriplegic for the rest of my life and that's why i say the surgery saved me i'm a different definitely a a product of modern medical science. I do a lot to support spinal cord injury research now because I'm like, I'm a, I'm a product of it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, the, the analogy I like to say to people, cause there are, um, there are spinal cord injuries that are permanent. And like if mine was left the way it was, it, I'm pretty confident it would have been permanent as well. Um, because it was a dislocation. It was like my spinal cord was in a, bar brawl and not a knife fight okay people when they break their bones and the bones shear and splinter and cut that's often those often result in permanent spinal cord injuries or they're called complete spinal cord injuries where the paralysis is complete and there's no hope of recovery it's just been cut off mine was crushed and battered and bruised there was a lot of scar tissue and I would, I'm considered and still to this day an incomplete quadriplegic because I still have um, paralysis in parts of my body, but it's incomplete paralysis. Like my hands and my wrists still have sensory uh, deficiencies and strength deficiencies. I've got um, my skin just below my belly button, a little bit higher up on my back is numb. So I can feel oh. pressure and I can feel pain, but I can't feel soft touch or like minute changes in balance. So I lose my balance all the time. People yeah. probably think I'm drinking 24 seven, but I'm just, <laughs> this is my, my regular demo now. Yeah. But, um, I, uh, 
I'm very lucky. And there are, then there are symptoms and stuff like that that aren't as commonly talked about spinal cord injuries because they're not visible. They're not on the surface, but there's uh, temperature sensitivities. There's hyper-reflexiveness where you, like, I can't be the person who holds the popcorn at the movie theater because anytime there's, like, a loud noise or a fright, my body fully reacts and I'll throw the popcorn everywhere. <laughs> I have spasticity, so when my legs get tired, I can't feel the muscle burn. They just start going into spasms and getting really hard to use. And then there's like bowel and bladder, genital function, and all that stuff that's affected as well. Even your body's ability to regulate temperature. Like if you get really cold, you can't heat up again. And then the shivers, because of the hyper-reflex, hyper-reflexiveness, your shivers are really intense and things like that. So there's like, there are plenty of, symptoms of quadriplegia that I still have that uh, have been consistent for the last four and a half years. So okay, they have, yeah, so it's just, uh, well, I should say they've been consistent for probably two and a half years. I was experienced some neurological recovery up until about two years after that, okay. after the injury. But then moving beyond that, anything that I improved in in terms of my abilities was all based on learning to use a new body and just basically being determined and working really hard yeah so wow i i actually i i didn't realize that there was a period where it would stop you would stop the recovery like i sort of in my brain just feel like i watch you on social media and i i do follow you and i've i i I feel as though, because you're starting to run and you're doing the world run when you did that 5K, I was like, Uh, yes, (laughs) from the other side of the country. I'm like, this is amazing. Um, But uh, I I guess I just assumed that it was a, there wouldn't be an end point. It was just going to keep getting better. Yeah, it's a. It's a common misconception with spinal cord injury, and especially because in my situation, like I have what you could consider very much to be an invisible disability. Right. Like to the untrained eye or to someone from the outside, I don't look like I have a a disability whatsoever unless someone notices the big scar on the back of my neck or sees me lose my balance. Yeah. Then, but they might still go like, oh, what's up with that guy? Like, it's no one thinks that, oh, unless you see the wheelchair, you don't think spinal cord injury for the most part. Mm-hmm. And, but I definitely am dealing with a permanent disability on a daily basis. And um, there are elements of that that are more challenging on the mental and emotional side because I can't identify with a wheelchair or having the spinal cord injury. So explaining it to people is. Yeah my disability is very much invisible to the mm-hmm. untrained eye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially, I have to, I mean, it's more of a mental and emotional challenge than it is physical at that point. And there are physical challenges, but it's almost harder just not being able to have uh, have it be something that doesn't require an explanation because it's, as I was saying, it's like, it's, it's ch- like you look how long we've talked. Mm-hmm it's hard to get it across or have let someone understand or see the intricacies of it in so few words, right? We've been talking for yeah. 15 minutes yeah. already. And yeah, of course. But yeah, it's, uh, it is, uh, it is challenging, but that's okay. Silver linings <laughs> and everything. You don't grow from the things that are easy. You grow from the things that are hard. And my experience has taught me a whole heck of a lot over the last four and a half years that I don't know if I would have learned it in 
at least this much this condensed a time frame without going through the trauma or so. or even a lifetime i mean like you went from this like superstar coach coaching national program to um to this crazy trauma and i mean you said it yourself earlier uh before we started this is like the learning you know the trauma is kind of um an interesting talking point but really what you learn and how you've become the Mike Shaw you are today happens after the trauma. Yeah, it's, um, it's certainly, if I could go back and take back the whole thing, I think I would, because I could save a whole lot of heartbreak and physical trauma and challenge and, and mental and emotional stuff that like, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's taught me a lot and I am so grateful for what I've learned throughout the whole process, but anybody can learn that stuff if they put effort into it. Yeah. And, um, and you learn it over time too. Like I have incredible conversations with my grandfather. Mm -hmm. He turns 95 in April. Oh my gosh. uh, Amazing. Get get along really well (laughs) (laughs) physically and mentally because (laughs) I learned some perspectives that he has also learned throughout his life that we can talk about. And we also move at more or less the same pace some days. So (laughs) it's it's all good. But yeah, I've, uh, I've put a lot of uh, effort into working to regain as much physically as I can. And like you said, like I've done some charitable work with doing runs and different events that are like physically challenging. The Red Bull 400 event in Whistler was the most recent one, which was so hard. It's 400 meter sprint or crawl straight up uh, an Olympic ski jump. I did the event in Whistler, BC, and I thought, well, it's only 400 meters. That's like once around the track, but you also have to climb the equivalent of a 45-story building at the same time, and you got to do it as fast as possible. And I mean, the winners are doing the men are doing it at just under four minutes, and the, oh, wow. and the ladies are doing it at just like four and a half minutes, like all out. Oh wow! Every and then I think I made it up in eight or nine, but it was uh, That's pretty that good. was really challenging and an <laughs> awesome sort of goal to set to help me fixate on something a bit bigger than myself that I could work towards in, in terms of like physical work. So it gave me uh, more motivation in the in my rehab and in the gym and the physio exercises and stuff that I still do. Mm-hmm. And then also the Wings for Life World Run. That's another endurance race where you see how far you can run there's a start line but no finish line oh oh i thought that there was like a 5k or a 10k or did you do like 10k one time i did uh the first year i did it i ran just under 10 okay it's like mind-blowing i had i did not i i had I set a goal going into it of like eight kilometers. And then in the weeks leading up to it, I was training and I was making it like three kilometers. And I was going, Oh, what did I do? <laughs> that was way, way too hard, but got to aim high. Yeah. And, uh, I'm glad I did. And I, and I surprised myself and surpassed my goal and ran almost 10 the following year. I made it 10 and a half, which I had trained way more for and was more of a letdown than the first year. Cause even though I mm-hmm. beat it, I had an expectation that I set myself, which, uh, didn't do me any uh, any good because if you live your life for expectations, you you can continuously let yourself down. But if you just set goals and keep working towards aspirations, even if you fail, it doesn't matter. It's still just the next step you needed to take. 
I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but I even a step that. backwards, even a step backwards is still a step forwards. If you never stop working towards your goals, it's just the next step you need to take. I know it's really, and, it's really interesting. Sorry to cut you off there. It's really interesting no how, like to hear you say that because like for me, I mean, um, we all have our, I don't know if you want to call them traumas or our shit or our, our life and, and, and our adversity, if you want to call it that. And it's some people measure others adversity or problems worse than others, you know, like it's like the scale and everyone has a, um, sort of like a, a judgment on who's better off and who's not, but it all comes down to like the same thing. It's like, you can see it this way or you can see it that way. You can see these small gains as, um, learning experiences. You can see the step backs as learning experiences as well. And like just coming from you and all the things you've been through, it's like super inspiring because, you know, sometimes I, I get stuck in the small things, you know, I get stuck fixating on the small insignificant things really, you know, everybody does. I yeah. still do. Yeah. For sure. Well, for sure. For sure. Understanding, um, understanding that what's hard is hard. Yeah. It's pretty important because what's hard I for really you like that. might, wow. what's hard for you might not be hard for me, but yeah. what's hard for me might be a total walk in the park for you. You know, it might be yeah. easy because yeah. you have a different experience or skill set to, to deal with it. But just in general, what's hard is hard and you never know what someone is going through unless you've walked a mile in their shoes. There's, mm-hmm. there's all of that, but you're right. We all have hardships that we face and some of them are traumatic and some of them are day-to-day and some of them are cumulative too like a like a like a layer cake or like a like it's like a shit onion (laughs) (laughs) with just so many layers of trauma and crap that you just get so bogged down in it and that's when it's easy to start feeling depressed and stuff like that because it's hard to see your way out at that point Mm -hmm. it's really dark sometimes but Mm -hmm. uh I use a peaks and valleys metaphor because if you're ever down in a dark valley bottom, it just means that you know what it feels like to stand on top of a bright mountain. Right. There are there's balance in everything, and if you're in the in the in the depths of the valley, you've got to trust that the reason why you know that it's dark down there is because you have you've seen what it's like to be standing on top of the mountain in the sun, and trusting that you can get there again you've been on top before you've climbed the mountain once before you can do it again but when the when the layers are layer on layer on layer of it 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 feels like sometimes you can be like pounding your fists on the bedrock the gates of hell because you can't get any lower I, i was there like i mean sometimes in my hospital bed like i called it the dark pit i actually wrote about it in my bed well actually Siri wrote about it. I just talked to Siri. <laughs> but um, when, uh, but then the flip side of that is that your new low gives you a greater emotional capacity to appreciate new highs. Of course. So having the optimism, the trust, and the hope to know that you're resilient and know that we all have it within ourselves to push through and we can all get back on top of the mountain, that's really huge. And when you get there it's going to feel like the biggest accomplishment of your life and you'll appreciate it that much more because you have the the perspective of being in the, in the valley bottom. 
And this, this, these learnings that you're talking about right now, that's part of the way you've kind of given back and you've shifted your career change. So why don't we talk about what you do now, um, outside of, um, well, I guess, yeah. yeah. After the trauma. After the trauma. Yeah. So I do a few different things. I am an entrepreneur. I'm self-employed. I also work for a number of other, I work for WorkSafe BC, I do some things, but so first of all, the one that I'd spend most of my time on is a, a program called Head Start Pro. It's a sports training program, mental training for coaches and athletes. Yeah. So if you ask most coaches and you go, okay, I can ask you in the like pivotal moments or the crux, most crucial, critical parts of competition or game, how important is an athlete's mental game compared to their physical? Are you asking me this for real? Is that yeah, for real? real. Like, yeah. If you were to rate it on a scale of like one to 10, how important is mental game in competition? Um, I would say depending on the person, because I do think it changes a little bit, it would range between like eight and 12 out of 10. Yeah. <laughs> That's a brilliant response. That's brilliant because most people, most people say it's like, well, it's like a 10 or it's like at least a nine out of 10 mm-hmm. important or your case a 12 out of 10, depending on the athlete important <laughs> because the physical work at that point is all done. Mm-hmm. But then if you go and ask, and now I say, I ask the same thing to coaches and I say, how much time do you devote specifically in your training plan to mental game? Mm-hmm. And if you had to rate it on a scale of one to 10, what would you say? Yeah. yeah. Well, well most of them say it's like pretty low. Like it's like, it's mm. usually the inverse. It's like a one or a two, like 10 to 20% of their time is spent on mental training. And they got to give themselves more credit because almost everything you do with athletes involves some sort of mental training, of course, even if it's just repetition and stuff like that. So it's usually more of a devoted time to mental training or putting process to it and actually getting some results. That's where I thought that we should change the sports coaching world. And with Head Start Pro, we're trying to do that. We're giving um, developing coaches and athletes, so in that like 14 to 22 age range, that are it's performance is really important. Mm-hmm. And also, um, injuries get pretty costly at that point because if you're out for any period of time, you miss your opportunities to perform. So with a couple of other guys, we created this mental training process. Where, which helps athletes improve focus, awareness, and mindfulness and their ability to recognize internal distractions and focus or channel their energy with their eyes and mind on what they're doing at the time so that they can perform better. But the other byproduct to performing with your eyes and mind on task is you'll prevent injuries. Mm-hmm. So we've got a performance-driven injury prevention training program now that I'm just launching in September. So I work on that for a lot most of my time and then I also wait I just want I have a question to that like so all the stuff that you're putting together for that head start pro which I think is a brilliant and it's like definitely a piece a layer um um uh, I don't know a program yeah. whatever you want like yeah the, the market almost like that's what I thought it's just like it's it's, it's a piece that's missing it's for a coaches, piece that's missing everybody knows it's important yes of course and um so do you use your own experience to fill in some of the blanks for this program? Like, do you wish that, not, wish maybe is like 
the worst, the worst word, but do looking back, do you feel as though if you had been trained, things would have gone differently for you? Yes. hundred percent. Because that day, like some of the, uh, the distracting physical and mental states that we find ourselves in, are, they're extremely common. It's like being in a rush, yep. being frustrated, yep. being tired or being complacent and just having your mind wander off. Like that day I was rushing and I was complacent and I know that like had I triggered on those, like, cause those are like rushing for sure is a, is a physical state. So you get active triggers from it. And if you actually recognize the rushing and trigger, you'll be in the state before you make the error. And if you recognize the state mm-hmm. ahead of time, it means you could actually prevent a costly injury or an accident from happening because you're in the state before. So it's one of the, the, the process that we use is a, is a proven injury prevention strategy. Yeah. And we can say that we actually prevent injuries and like the first injury too, not like an SNC program to prevent getting hurt again or yeah. a baseline test after you have your first concussion. Like we're trying to prevent the first one by appealing to what motivates athletes, which is the performance. Because those same, the states, like rushing, frustration, fatigue, complacency, they affect the way that athletes perform mm-hmm. as much as cause costly injuries. But I use, that's, I mean, I get really fired up by the performance and enhancement side of things and working on, on athletes and coaches' mental game and giving coaches mental training tools so they actually have a process to work on their, work on with their athletes. Yeah. But the, uh, just by recognizing when you're in a rush, when you're frustrated, when you're tired and taking a moment to slow down, calm down, get some rest, that'll prevent a heck of a lot of performance errors and injuries. And with complacency too, there are things like working on uh, sports specific habits or mm-hmm. analyzing some close calls. Cause like complacency is a little bit more different. It's different than the other States because you become complacent when you've done something so many times or when you've been doing it for so long that you're no longer thinking about the risk or you're just no longer thinking about what it is. Like, sure. for instance, driving, have you ever made it 15 minutes down the road and you go like, and you're driving, you're like, whoa, how the hell am I alive right now? <laughs> totally. A hundred percent. I can't remember what I've been doing for the last 15 minutes, but I've been doing it. Yeah. And that's because you have good habits and you're looking and even though your your mind is completely off task, like you could be thinking about something else completely, you still have like automatic behaviors that work really well and your yeah. habits are automatic. So if you get into a, a good mindset or, or so like even like moving your eyes before you move, that's a performance related habit that ah. so if you move your eyes first, you'll always get a reflex action and you'll always see like plays breaking down and team sports and stuff like that. But there's just, I mean, we're trying to put a process to that for other coaches and athletes so that they have like really practical and easy to use tools. So it is essentially like teaching, um, awareness awareness of your thought awareness of your habits awareness of beliefs even in a lot of like how you believe things things are (laughs) and like and how you how you react to your external environment because oftentimes there's like there's internal frustration if you don't progress fast enough or whatnot but there's also like you know external distractions people other teammates other opponents whatever they could they can uh cause you to be frustrated so like recognizing your frustration and deciding how you react to the stimulus is 
really the the crux of it of it for yeah. each of the each of the states and it's we just try to give um strategies that are really easy to use like i mean when you're frustrated the the only way you can stay frustrated is if you keep thinking about what may, what's making you mad yeah so that's a life hack if i've ever heard one <laughs> like, yeah so stop thinking about what's making you frustrated and you think about what you're doing and you channel the energy and like for athletes they can actually perform better because as soon as you're mad you've stimulated your adrenal gland so you're faster, you're stronger, you've got more energy. Like it's, it's actually like you're, it's the superhero drug, mm-hmm. but people have to channel the frustration properly. If you don't, it can unravel your performance completely. If you do, you can hit your best performances ever because you're just, you're physically able to perform at a higher level with your adrenal gland stimulated and all the noradrenaline and the neuro cocktail being stimulated in your brain in your brain so it's uh it's cool i'm really fired up on it i'm really passionate about it because i want to help and sport the world of sport in general yeah but coaches and athletes on an individual level on a team level i think we can help them uh perform at a higher level in a in the zone more often because they're not succumbing to those distractions they'll stay at a peak performance level more consistently and of course, for me, the one important thing is if you get better at looking and thinking, you're less likely to screw up and and have potential injuries, which is massive. And if I could prevent one injury like mine from happening to anybody, I'd be more than happy. Be all worth it. It is. It is. Yes. One hundred. I love all of this stuff. Like these things too. Like I mean, is there? Um... Because for me, I, I like that you do target coaches and athletes. I mean, it's really um, a way to, um, I, it, it's definitely a necessary layer, but you can almost like apply these things to just normal life, like a busy mom or like a crazy job or, you know, the same oh, yeah. mistakes happen. Have you ever happen. sent an email in a rush? <laughs> you when you're frustrated? Oh, yeah. Or have you ever bought something when you're in a rush? That's got me a couple times. I bought three pairs of pants because I couldn't decide on two, which I wanted two for work. So I'm like, whatever, I'll buy them all. I was in a rush, had no time, got to check out. They were 150 bucks a piece. Oh. And I was like, uh, at this point I was like, whatever, I'll return one if I, if I, uh-huh. and I was uh-huh. like, did it. Most money I've ever spent on clothes, I think. <laughs> Get them home and they're all dry clean only. <laughs> dry and, clean uh, only. To this day, I've worn those pairs of pants. Like, like, and I bought them for work, for conference speaking, and for stuff like that. Don't get me wrong, I wear them more now, but I'm like, and I, I never went back to exchange a pair, so I'm, I still have the 450 bucks. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, I bet you every single person listening uh, has had a situation like that in their life at least one time. <laughs> um, or yeah, it's like it's so common. We, uh, you know, when you're mad, you say things that you wouldn't say necessarily if you weren't mad. So it's like, oh, that's a big one. That's a big one. First is a, is a good idea. Okay. So you're, you're doing, um, head start pro. And then you were saying the third thing that you're doing is. So it all revolves around public speaking. So, okay. I, um, one thing that I've really found that gives me a lot of joy in life now is, um, is public speaking. Cause it's a lot like freestyle skiing. Mm-hmm. 
is in a freestyle skiing run when you're at the top of the contest you're in the staging area you're getting ready to do your run there are a lot of nerves and a lot of butterflies coursing through you and it's most of it is pressure that you put on yourself because you work so hard and you've got like one or two chances to put down your run on the course yeah so when you get to the front of the start gate and you hear the starter call your name and they're like bib number such and such you're up those nerves are like they're paramount they're like as high as they'll get and then you get the you push out through the gate and it's like there <laughs> it's so it's such an intense experience and that's just what it's like when you walk up on stage and yeah. you've been introduced at a big conference or something like that and then your performance will fall back on your preparation much like in sport and just kind of work your way through your run hitting the jumps, the, the moguls as you go down and nailing your points as you make your way through your presentation. And then when you get to the end, the last thing that matters is the money booter at the bottom. The <laughs> last thing the judges are going to see, it's your yeah. overall impression score. <laughs> and so if you stop that landing or stick the landing on your clothes and hopefully the crowd applauds because <laughs> you did a good job and they give you a good score, all of the nerves that are with you at the top of the contest run they wash through you in a rush of adrenaline after you walk off stage mm -hmm. just the same way. So it's like, for me, public speaking is really fantastic personally, but I also like that I get to take what I've learned and a lot of the messages around like leading with an athlete mindset and how the athlete mindset isn't solely reserved for athletes and how we can take some of the, the strategies and tools that athletes use and activate them in our day-to-day -day lives or our working lives or whatever it is to achieve a higher level of success. Mm -hmm. I also talk about stuff on identity and I go into schools and talk about, um, I work for WorkSafe BC and do a school circuit in the Okanagan talking about uh, like just trusting your gut and listening to your inner voice and, and understanding well, there's some workplace safety rights stuff all involved with that, but I, it's all uh, based around public speaking and with a variety of different audiences, like um, different conferences, corporate groups, yeah. oh, you name it, but I love it. It's a lot of fun. So do you now, um, um, you mentioned the identity audit, and we don't have to get into this too, too much, but like how today do you identify with yourself that's kind of a big question but yeah interesting i'll i'll talk about what the identity audit is first okay it, it's something i came up with in the not the months but the years following my accident because it took a while for me to figure out who i did identify with or okay. what i identified with and so um, your identity audit is about auditing the things that make you you in a, in a nutshell, but it's about grounding out on the foundational values, your core values, um, things that are truly important to you, like your family, things like things that are like the big picture items yeah. that make, make you a big part of who you are. Yeah. And even family, I don't know if it's, 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 that might be on the next layer up, but your foundation is like your integrity, whether or not you're responsible or not. If your, your sense of humor, humility, being humble, being honest, trustworthy, all those things that even after trauma or after you lose your job, you don't lose those things. Right. Like, so that's, that is the core of your identity and it's your foundation and understanding that if you, uh, most people identify with their jobs. Right. Or what they what they do or what has happened or, to them. 
Yeah, or what's happened to them, or their yeah. sport, or if they're a mother, that they're a mother, or like, you know, a family man, or, yeah. you know, what have you. There's plenty of examples, you know, if you're just really into, you know, being in the mountains and being a, a and, you know, an adventurer. Mm-hmm. But all of those things are titles, they're labels. Mm-hmm. And they're labels that we subconsciously give ourselves permission to define us. Mm-hmm. And when you start thinking about your identity, it's really easy to get, like for me, I was Mike Shaw, the skier, the coach. Like mm-hmm. if you asked anybody, they'd say, oh yeah, Mike Shaw, he's a skier or he's Mike Shaw, the skier. You know, like it was yep. such a big part of who I was at that time in my life that when yep. I lost it, I felt like I lost myself. Yeah. But I couldn't have been more wrong because after my accident and it took time, but I, I realized that I was stronger within myself and my personal core identity than I'd ever been because I was stripped away of all the flack, all the unimportant little pieces, like the things that were, and I mean, like I see they're like, they're, they're not unimportant. Like freestyle skiing was not unimportant to me, but it didn't make me who I was underneath it all. It was just how I chose to spend my time. It was what you chose to value. Uh, Yes. Yeah. And then, and yes. Yeah, just what I chose to do. Yes. And, but like I say, it's subconscious because yes. you, don't, you don't decide like I am going to be a skier and everybody will know me as a skier. It happened gradually over time sure. and it became what I thought was my identity. But really all it is is a title or a label. Yeah. And underneath it all, and I'm not saying it's not important. Skiing is incredibly important to me. It shaped my life in such a big way. I'm so grateful that I ever learned and to ski or and took it to a high level of competition and coaching and all that don't get me wrong um it doesn't mean it's not important but it doesn't it doesn't it's not your foundation and if basically the identity audit is if you ground out with your foundation if you take the time to audit what truly makes you you and figure out the things that are the most important then with a wide and strong base or foundation, you'll grow a tall pyramid. And the layers that you choose to put on top of that pyramid, that's choice. It's uh, it's deliberate, and you get to then choose from a place of being really strong and grounded out already what you're going to do with your life. And if you then run into troubles, setbacks, adversities, obstacles that you need to overcome, it helps that you've done the prep work to know that you're solid already and mm-hmm. that you can handle it mm-hmm. so that even if something like, you know, your job, you, uh, you don't get the promotion you were hoping for, or, or, or it happens that you actually lose your job or even you retire. Mm-hmm. That's like huge. Like so many people go through that crisis at retirement because they've been doing the same thing year in, year mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. And that's like, well, they, you have to choose what you're going to, how you're going to fill your time differently but it doesn't change who you are. So when this, I, I'm curious to know um, through your learnings, did you wake up one day and have a new perspective on life or was it like super gradual? Did you wake up and be like, and recognize that shift in the identity, in your identity or the labels and, and you, you don't like, cause for me, I, I believe that a lot of people give labels, like we just sort of talked about a lot of power. We, we identify with them, but when you shift out of that for, for you, was it, was it just like one day or was it, 
How did that work for you or how did that look for you? There were certain things after my accident that like my perspective changed right away. Like I realized how lucky I was to have had a lot of the things in my life that I did up until that point that once they were gone, yeah, I realized that, and I, I didn't think of myself as someone who was an ungrateful person, but there are certainly, there are things that we don't even show up as a blip on the radar of the things we think we take for granted, like brushing our teeth, right? Like, yeah. It's just something you do every day. Now, you don't think too much about like, oh, I'm really, really so lucky. I'm so grateful I can brush my own teeth, yeah. which it's a privilege to everybody. Like if, as soon as you can't brush your teeth, you're going to be like, wow, I really wish I could brush my teeth right now. It feels like my teeth are wearing socks. But yeah, the, uh, <laughs> another bad joke. <laughs> but, uh, but like, you know, like for instance, that, so that perspective changed right away. And I compared my, my situation lying in a bed as a quadriplegic to a lot of things like disease, death, heartbreak. Like it, I grieved, I grieved the loss of my body immensely. So those kind of things changed immediately, but the learning the identity piece that took a long time because my identity has shifted too. It went from being like Mike Shaw, the skier to Mike Shaw, the quadriplegic. I was actually in a wheelchair. So people saw me as that. And it was like, you know, it was creating some, it was in my progress and things like that were inspirational to some people. So I, I tried to roll with that for a while. And then when that started to fade away or changed, I realized I was like, okay, so I have to figure this out again now because now I'm not in the wheelchair. And then I had ditched my Timmy sticks, like my crutches and my cane and everything. And so I was like, then I almost looked like a normal person, but I still couldn't do the things I wanted to do. So mm-hmm. who was I again? So I had to, that process took a lot of time to figure out and um i don't know that it's i mean there are aha moments for sure like there are times where I've, where things have come to me and i've figured it out like when i realized that i was just as strong underneath it all as i'd ever been that was i some time after the accident and before i'd fully let go of like the quadriplegic card right so it actually helped me get through the trauma because I didn't feel like I needed to identify as a quadriplegic anymore. I could just identify as Mike Shaw and I could be me underneath all of it and on top. I could just be me. Yeah, just be And you. that was cool and it was totally enough and nobody was asking for anything more. And oh. it was like that was really something special because it was a huge boost in self-confidence and self-esteem and yeah. hope and trust and all the things that like being optimistic and, and like it just really helped me get to a point where I was like I can handle almost anything now and like I don't have to handle it as anybody else I don't have to put up a front I don't have to like have to be this label or that label or or stick to my titles I can just be me and yes so that a- has been something I've worked on for quite a while and that's probably one of the biggest I mean pieces for me that's been a value of doing the whole identity audit process but I know that the so the I developed the identity audit with a group of fourth graders interesting I was uh I was on I was at my (laughs) girlfriend's sister's classroom on Vancouver Island and I started asking these questions. I was like, well, who was Mike Shaw? And I wrote it up on the board and I put up on one side before and then on the right, on the left before the right after. I said, who was Mike Shaw before 
his accident and it was like skier adventurer adrenaline junkie coach like all these all these things and i was like okay well and then i put like you know a couple things that were important like responsible coaching and like organized things like that And, and then i uh i looked and i was like well who was mike after his accident and i looked back at the before side and i crossed all the things off the list except for like responsible and organized and obviously super funny and then (laughs) (laughs) and then i crossed over to the right and so i could pull some of those over Uh and then i was like well okay well who is mike after and then i started thinking more about it with the kids and i was like all right well i'm honest i'm trustworthy i'm a friend i've i'm all these things that are still there and if not more so because when you lose some of those other titles, you fall back on the things that are that are there already. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I kind of like organically stumbled upon this like audit process. And I think it's actually an original idea. I've been working with a, uh, a psychologist in, in Vernon, my hometown, because I worked for them doing a uh, working with um, it's an it's a post-traumatic stress disorder clinic essentially Uh it's occupational health rehab everything like that from for war vets xrcmp paramedics and firefighters like the whole spectrum and because part of their loss and some of the traumas that they've been through they really cause problems with like the feeling of identity and like especially when those people stop being in the military or stop being part of the armed forces and and police and everything else like that their their purpose in life it feels like it's evaporated all of a sudden yeah and then they're left with layer on layer ptsd and so i go to them i'm like you guys have to understand that you're the exact same people you were before and uh and you are that now after and it's probably even stronger than it was before that some of them have come some of them come back and say, I don't want to be the person I was before. And I say, that's okay too. <laughs> you get, to, you get to choose, choose. Pick and choose the pieces that make you, you. And if you want to, and you can let go of some of those pieces, it might be harder and take time. And I don't know what that process is going to look like for you, but it's possible. And yeah. you, if you do it, you will be able to, to choose at the, the, the new things you want to do to identify with like those new titles and new labels, the things that are, the activities that are going to bring you joy, but underneath it all, you're still the same person. I love that. I, this really resonates with me. I'd love to like know more about your identity audit as you like build it. And I, I don't know, post podcast here, I would love to, it's like something that resonates with me because I definitely identified with all the labels that I gave myself. Like, um, before when I was, like massively obese I'm a divorced person I didn't go to the Olympics I am now um waitress you know things like post skiing and I identified with those things and I I gave them power and now it wasn't for me like all of those things you know happened I learned um but when I let go of that that's when I could be the most authentic yeah and it's I guess it happens um I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I really like this identity audit thing, the labels. It's a very, very powerful thing. I think you're I haven't onto put a something. I have a lot of thought into also the, the flip side of it because, I mean, 
And I get, I mean, I've, I've experienced it with the, the war vets. They come back and they say, yeah, I don't want to identify with that person anymore. Mm-hmm. They're like, fair enough. That's the, that is the challenge. But yeah, cause there are, there's the, we're hard on ourselves. Oh man. There's like 2,500 negative adjectives in the human or the English vocabulary and only 1,800 positive ones. Like we have a, a tendency oh. to be more negative. Uh-huh. It's just, it's ingrained in us and like if, and some more than others. So, but if like anything in life, there's balance. And if you can be one, you can be the other. No one's, no one's like completely polar or one pole or the other. No one's completely negative or completely positive. Depending on the day, you'll land somewhere on the spectrum between being completely optimistic and being completely pessimistic. Right. Mm-hmm. And so but if you if it changes on the day and because it changes a product that is it means that you can you can change it you can change it if you put effort in and it's and it's and it's subtle it's things like i use gratitude all the time to help me uh put things in perspective mm-hmm. i think one of gratitude's most powerful um tools or the most powerful way of using it is it just helps you frame setbacks in the grand scheme of things Mm -hmm. and it helps you put things in perspective because Mm -hmm. if you're ever feeling negative or down or like, and you're kind of in the, what did we call it earlier? The shit onion. (laughs) (laughs) When you're in the shit onion. I love that. I'm going to use that. (laughs) Yeah, we should trademark that. But if you're, if you're in that, like where you've got layer upon layer of, of crap and, um, it's hard, like gratitude helps you put that stuff in perspective because it doesn't take far for you to look to, to realize that you still got a lot to be thankful for. As soon as you start thinking about the, the gratitude, it's really powerful. Like I'll give you an example and to all the listeners out there for the power of gratitude. Please do. Is, uh, first, I want you to think about something and it has to be a thing. It can be an object or an experience. But something in your life that you're truly thankful for, that you're grateful that you have it as part of your your day-to-day or your week-to-week, month-to-month, whatever it is, but a thing or a, so an object or an experience. So not a person is what you're saying? Not a person. Not a so person. Think, okay. Think of it and just hold it in your mind. Okay. I'm going to do this too while you're saying this. Is that, is that yeah. okay? Okay. Cool. Okay. I got mine. <laughs> got it. Okay. Yeah. So think about it. And how does it make you feel? wonderful and you're smiling so yeah but it makes you feel it makes you feel good right okay so now i want you to think about a person this time and this is a person in your life and you're gonna do the whole same thing hold them in your mind feel it out everything like that but it's someone that you could be more grateful for someone that perhaps you take for granted okay got it how does that make you feel? Um, it makes me feel hopeful. Is that? Oh, that's yeah. good. I haven't heard it before, but I like it. Okay. Uh, did it make you feel a little bit less comfortable? Yes. Or you feel your you feel your temperament change, and you can almost feel a tightness in your chest just thinking about it. Yes, so. it it does it could because it makes it there was a a, mo, a brief moment there where like the first feeling that I experienced was a little bit of not regret but like more like um I judged myself for not appreciating them and then I like flipped it and I was like, "Oh, I can 
I can do this. Yeah. So this is the next question I say. Does anybody out there feel like they want to take action? Like they want to maybe reach out and let that person know that you're thankful for them. Well, for me, the answer would be yes, because I like already answered that with the, the hopeful, I think. Like I'm hopeful that that um, I can improve on this feeling. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that's the power of gratitude in like mm-hmm. whatever, 30 or 40 seconds, I can make you feel from like being like feeling joy, the warm and fuzzies to feeling like borderline anxious to feeling like you want to take action. Yes. And it's a really, really powerful tool. So because it has this power or this like ability to even make us change how we feel at a physical level to want to act, to take action, to do something. If you apply gratitude to so many things in life and especially like with the, the whole perspective piece and the mm-hmm. uh, understanding Refra- or framing setbacks and things like that it gives you the ability to, to accomplish so much more in your life and i i tell people that gratitude should become a daily practice it is mm-hmm. for me as mm-hmm. a byproduct of what i've gone through because i'm literally thankful every time my feet hit the floor in the morning and i stand up to get out of bed mm-hmm. i get these moments where i am like brushing my teeth or flossing and i can actually wrap the floss around my fingertips like it's it's really remarkable that's unique for me. It doesn't have to be that intense though. I mean, it could be like if you really like coffee in the morning, it could be your first cup of coffee when you wake mm-hmm. up. That could be your gratitude trigger that makes you remind you to go, yeah, like I'm I'm thankful for this. Things are good. Things mm-hmm. are good today. And that's like if you do that on a regular basis, you will have less low swings and more upswings, and it'll be easier. And even when you do get um, blindsided by something unexpected that is like a trauma or a challenge some sort of adversity that you didn't expect to have that day dog has to go to the vet doesn't matter what it is because you do all this prep work with gratitude you'll default to that as your state versus having to just pull it out of the toolkit when you're feeling sad so it's for me i I really stress the importance of gratitude and helping others with it because it's uh it's a big part of what I, what's got me through a lot of the, the tough times. So, wow, Mike, I'm just realizing we've been chatting for an hour. Where did the time go? (laughs) Oh my God. That like, have anybody still listening at this point, they're never going to get that 60 minutes of their life. But they will be grateful (laughs) for your, for all of the things that they've learned. I'm sure. Um, okay, well, I think I want to wrap it up and just say thank you so much for telling your story and sharing. And I cannot wait to see where all of this leads. And I think you're so inspiring. Um, and I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing the next phase of this. Thank you. Okay. I really appreciate it. If anybody out there feels the inclination to want to reach out, can find me through my website, mikeshawski.com. I do mentorship and coaching and try to help people as much as possible because I like to pay it forward. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of help too. So it's mikeshawski.com uh, Mike and then... Um, and then, oh yeah, Head Start Pro if anything's, if anyone's interested in the mental training stuff for sport or for life. Yeah, and I will definitely have that in the show notes. And of course, you can direct message me as well. All right, thank you Amazing. so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Wow. 
every time I hear that man speak, I feel like a different person and an uplifted, inspired, and extremely grateful person. Again, if you'd like to learn more about Mike, please visit his website at www.mikeshawski.com. You can also see him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Mike Shawski. Mike's message is simple. We all get to choose our attitude and effort every day. It's a universal right we all have. So choose gratitude and choose your full effort. It's incredible what we're capable of. That's all for today, everyone. I hope you all have the best day. Until next time.